who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break, this podcast, the fan podcast that looks at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. And today we're stepping slightly outside of the realm of Dolph and discussing the Masters of the Universe toy line, as well as the definitive documentary on the subject, Toy Masters. Joining me to reminisce on the iconic toy line and phenomenon is Corey Landis, the creator, director, and narrator of the Toy Masters documentary. Corey, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Well, and this is, I mean, I, okay, so I watched the documentary that you so graciously uh, sent my way, and then I cranked through all five of the, uh, of the, all five of the podcast episodes, and I mean, it's very clear that the Masters of the Universe toy line really shaped your youth as well as it did mine, as well as so many other uh, young boys who grew up in the 1980s. So thank you for putting this thing together. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, it very much did. And uh, before uh, we go further, I just wanted to just clarify that uh, the, the documentary was a co-production uh, and direction by uh, my friend uh, Roger Lay Jr. So I just didn't want to take a sole uh, credit for um, the documentary there. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, I remember, uh, I think I remember being on the uh, playground, um, oh, probably in first grade or something. And, you know, I think we were playing Star Wars up until that point. And I I think I announced from now on, we're, we're now playing he-Man and the Masters of the Universe at recess time. You know, it was, it was that when it first came out, it, it just now that was the thing that we were all going to be into. Uh, so yeah, it was it was it was a huge part of uh, of my uh, childhood, and you know, it, it continued on. You know, I, I got out of it uh, for a little while. Um, uh, you know, sort of when. It, it uh, kind of disappeared for a little while, but then, you know, the, the franchise just sort of kept going, and so I was able to kind of delve back into it as a young adult, which was, which was fun as well. Well, you know, we, we did the episode looking at the Masters of the Universe movie um, a few years ago, but we really uh, have, have yet to do an episode that, that looks at the behemoth of the toy line cartoon and overall uh, phenomenon that was Masters of the Universe. And, you know, it's funny because, yeah, I sent you that picture of my little boy at Christmas time. We kind of yeah. we, we called it the, uh, the He-Man Christmas because one of the beauties of, you know, Masters of the Universe making the comeback that it is or that it has been is that I am now getting to kind of share my love of this, you know, this amazing uh, toy line with my little boy. And it's funny because, yeah, this Christmas, I mean, grandmas, grandmas are the best. Grandma hooked them up. <laughs> and um, he got just about every figure. And I just had a blast with him opening all these packages up. And it was funny. There was this this kind of a moment of reality and clarity where we're opening up all these packages and all of these figures are out of the boxes. And I'm thinking to myself, like, 
there are all sorts of 40 year old collectors and, uh, and, and fans out there who are like, what are you doing? Taking that out of the box. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. But you know, I mean, that's the thing is ultimately they're meant to be played with. It's, it's, it's something that I wrestle with too. Cause I've got, I've got figures of all kinds and it's, it's always a thing like, Oh, I, should I take it out of the box? But it's like, it's meant to be played with. It's meant to be displayed. It's, but it's always, always a conundrum. Well, and you know, you and and I, and I'm assuming uh, your your partner, uh, Roger Lay. You know, we're I, I think we're all about in the same age, and we both grew up with this um, with this toy line. So I guess I have to ask before we get going, uh, your favorite Masters of the Universe character and action figure. Who was yours? Um, I. I always kind of opted for the more sinister, dark kind of uh, uh, characters and designs. And I, Hordak was, I just, as a kid, I just loved the way that that character looked. And he's always been uh, one of my favorites. Um, uh, I think the first character, uh, the first action figure that I got was Manny Faces, which was a, yep. <laughs> which was a fun one. Um, but there's just there's there's so many. It's hard to it's hard to nail down. But I my go to answer is always Hordak, just because it's uh, I just and especially with the new iterations with the uh, the classics figures and everything, it, it just it, it just kind of keeps getting better and cooler looking. Um, so I uh, I always uh, really liked Hordak quite a bit. You know, I, I I had two actually, and sadly, one I never had the uh, the the pleasure of having. But um, I always I always loved Ram Man. I always yeah. thought Ram Man was just really really cool. And what's interesting about Ram Man, and correct me correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I think Ram Man was the only figure that veered away from the traditional He Man absolutely prototype. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that it's uh, it's it's just about the only one, if not the only one, that. Didn't go with the uh, the the standard um, interchangeable arms, chest, legs, etc. He was his own sort of thing, and and you can you can tell because they made it out of that plastic, you know, rather than the uh, more tougher rubbery plastic that they did all the others with. They were like, well, if we're going to do a one-off of this, we we're going to have to if we're going to come up with completely new molding. For this, we're going to have to maybe chintz out a little bit on the uh, what it's made out of. But yeah, yeah, yeah a, a fun character. Yeah. My my other favorite was Faker, mm-hmm. and I loved Faker mainly, you know, because I was a little kid. So I loved Faker because of the colors. I mean, there's yeah, no, no I, the colors of Faker that blue with the orange just looked so rad as a little six year old. A hundred percent. I still feel the the same way. It's it's. I mean, it's it's just funny when you're a kid. Uh, you don't kind of see what they're doing, and then as an adult, you totally see what they're doing. It's like, oh, they just—they they yeah. were just trying to come up with a new figure and not have to spend any money. But yeah, the, that that color combo, um, and then the different uh, the the swapping of the the outfits and everything—it's such a simple thing, but it's very striking and very cool. I, Skeletor, created you to destroy He-Man. You did. You're Faker. Look like He-Man only evil. Evil. Action figures sold separately. He-Man, He-Man. You're not He-Man, you're Faker. Faker has all the power. Oh, yeah? Watch this power. Uh, Only He-Man has all the power in the universe. Faker, He-Man, and Skeletor from the Masters of the Universe collection, each sold separately from Mattel. Well, and it's it, as you look back upon it now as an adult, I mean, I didn't realize it as, as a child, obviously, but as I look back upon it as an adult, it really is amazing how the entire franchise and concept was the juggernaut that it was. Because, I mean, if you really, <laughs> if you really take a look at the concept, let's be perfectly honest, Corey, it, it's, it's kind of stupid. I mean, you have, yeah. you have barbarian worlds mixed with Star Wars and magic and wizardry and everything. I don't even think the writers and the artists really understood this world and the logic behind any of it. It seemed like... You know, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe existed on this planet where essentially anything and everything goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think uh, Donald F. Glute uh, sort of encapsulized, uh, or encapsulated rather, uh, kind of what you just said in the documentary. He he was kind of one of the more outspoken uh, uh, people uh, about 
just how random and silly and odd the whole thing seemed. Everybody else kind of that we interviewed in the documentary had uh, still ties and hooks to the 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 line and had sort of careers in it. He was just sort of in at the beginning, so he was kind of he felt more at liberty to kind of go, this was just crazy. I had no idea what was going on and nobody nobody else did either. Uh but yeah, and then they and then they had to, you know, sort of over time hone it down and actually kind of create some rules and and some ideas behind that world. But yeah, at the beginning it just was like, what the hell's going on here? By the power of Ray So, yeah, I mean, that had to be that had to be pretty cool getting in touch with all of these all of these various individuals and, you know, getting to hear their sides. And obviously, as as you guys uncovered in the documentary, there's quite uh, there's quite a lot of drama that went down. But out of all of the interviews that uh, that you were fortunate in in gathering, were there any individuals in particular that just you were very giddy to uh, to nab and to land? Oh yeah, I mean Lou Scheimer. Lou Scheimer, I was beside myself. I could not believe that we were uh in his home talking to him and getting him on tape and getting the great interview that we did. I was just I was pinching myself the whole time. I mean, in between uh takes and interviews, he would take us around his office and show us all of, you know, the different posters and toys for all the stuff that uh that he had done over the years and you know i mean as as a kid watching he-man and the other uh shows that he did you know you always i always knew that name because you saw his uh cursive signature at the yeah. at the end of those shows and just you know he was he was this sort of uh unknown legendary uh, faceless entity in my in my childhood mind and then to be talking to him was just uh, a, a complete thrill. So he was, he was the biggest kind of pinch me uh, uh, interview. I think that, that we did. Well, and he, you know, as, as I look about upon it now, you know, it's interesting because I feel like in my opinion, I mean, just, just, you know, the, from the outsider's view as a fan looking in, I feel like those who worked on the animated series almost had a harder job. You know, the, I feel like their job was more difficult than the toy makers and everything like that, because they're essentially, like we talked about earlier, the concept is pretty stupid with all of these various worlds and concepts mm-hmm. and everything. And suddenly they're forced to make a coherent story out yeah. of the deal. And, and, not, and not only stories, but uh, actually make them characters with personalities. Yeah. 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 Because I mean, <laughs> that's the other thing too, is, I mean, if you look at this, I mean, I, I think it would have been amazing to be on this concept as both a toy creator, as an animator, whatever it may be. But if, if you look upon it, yeah, it seemed like even the artists were, they were clearly having fun with the lack of limits that were established in the Masters of the Universe world. I mean, it almost felt like, I mean, there's quite a few reasons why it ended up faltering at the end, but it almost felt like near the end, they were almost, and correct, I mean, if I don't know if you felt this way or not, but it felt like they were almost starting to become fairly lazy and somewhat complacent in their work. I mean, if you look at the character of Snout Spout, for example, <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't yeah. help but look at that and think, like, what the hell are they doing here at this point? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, most of the, um, most of the, uh, characters that they had to use were directly from Mattel. They were, there were only a few that were uh, invented in the filmation program. So they were kind of, they were kind of stuck with what they had to work with. And I, I would say that the complacency and uh, uh, laziness even that you're talking about was more coming from Mattel than the folks on the show. I think they would be they would have been happy to continue on and 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 keep doing the show, but it their 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 hands were tied at a certain point because everybody over at Mattel were the the ones that were sending them what they had to work with, and um, you know, and it, I think uh, Mark Taylor talks about it, and other people talk about it. There was definitely a complacency that was happening with the creation of the characters over at Mattel at that time. 
Well, I mean, and, and again, I kick myself now because oh, I didn't notice it as a child. But as an adult, I mean, if you look at, for example, Moss Man and Beast Man, mm-hmm. it's the same mold. It's the yeah. same. You know, I mean, all they did is they just added little green fuzzy the, to the flocking. You know what I mean? The flocking. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And then same thing with Merman and, and Stinkor. And so yeah. the toy makers, I mean, yeah, they're they're working. But I mean, in the end, they're kind of using what they already have. And suddenly you have the animators creating the show. They now have to throw this character into the show. Like, yeah, how? yeah it was, that's that that was their number one job was to get the 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 characters on screen to sell toys and. You know, and, and they're they're left with all right. Well, this guy looks exactly like this guy, so now we have to turn him into something, make a character out of it, make it interesting. But yeah, I mean, Mattel. There was always, um, even from the beginning, that that bit of the bottom line and and and, and saving and and stretching everything from reusing uh, the the arms and the torsos and everything. It was always happening. But it just got worse and worse to the point where it was just like, you know, it's you have to try, guys. You have to at least try. It's it's becoming pretty transparent what's happening here. And they were just like, well, we're just going to keep cranking these things out. They're just they're just kids, and uh, we can save some money by just <laughs> painting this thing a different color. They're not going to notice, and the money just keeps rolling in. It's like. That's a pretty um, limited and cynical view that's going to eventually catch up with you and and uh, bite you in the uh, rear end. Something else that I think is also extremely commendable is how you and the documentary, I mean, you and Roger, you guys never lean one way or the other in deciding who is owed the credit. I mean, I, I feel like your documentary is, you guys are very fair and unbiased in the entire thing. I mean, so obviously Good. there's the, you know, the, 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 the big, I think at the crux of the entire, the entire film is who is owed the credit. Uh, is it Roger sweet or is it Mark Taylor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, we tried very hard to um, be as uh, unbiased as possible with the presentation. Uh, you know, we, we wanted to pepper it with the experience that we were going through and having talking to these people and the wheels that began turning in our heads after talking to these people. Um, so, you know, you, you experienced the documentary through us. So we did want to have that. Uh, um, we wanted to share with the audience the experience that we were having of the, the back and forth of trying to, trying to figure something out, but ultimately we didn't want to put a, a stamp on, um, well, this is, this is what we ended up deciding. Cause it's not really, it's not, uh, th- there are obviously different ways of doing documentaries and, you know, um, one would argue that the whole point is to have a, a, a narrative point of view. Um, you know, I guess the most prominent example would be like a Michael Moore thing where there's no doubt in your mind how, how he feels about the the story and subject matter that's that he's um, uh, filming, but we just didn't feel it was uh, appropriate, and it's much more interesting, I think, to to not guide somebody to a particular end and to have the people watching at home kind of decide for themselves because it does spark some interesting thought and conversations because um, everybody kind of has a different um, spin on what they think is the truth. That's much more interesting, I think, to, to finish a movie and, and have a conversation about, well, uh, what did we just watch and what do we actually think rather than, well, we know how they think, so I guess we're supposed to think that, you know? Well, and both of these individuals, I mean, they, they are, they are very, I mean, you can tell. Characters. Like, yeah, characters. both these characters, yeah. And they are, um, I, I, I guess, is stubborn a fair a fair word uh, that's, to yeah, that's the, uh, as Lois Lane <laughs> said, the understatement of the year. Yeah. Well, and I mean, look, the, the one character who we have to talk about, Roger Sweet. I mean, mm-hmm. where to even begin with uh, him? I, and, the dude could have his own series, man. Yeah. <laughs> I can, just and I, fascinating. And I can only imagine what you had to cut and what was oh, not included. Lord <laughs> almighty. Uh, we, when we first showed up to Roger Sweet's place, now this was after um, after receiving uh, reams of uh, documentation by him in the mail, and then also that followed subsequently for 
um, it, I would say a couple years after we already talked to him. So we showed up to his place and he talked for three hours straight before we even rolled the camera. <laughs> and we were like, the whole time I was saying, okay, this is great, but you know, we're, we want to get this on, on film and you know, I would interrupt him again. So, oh, this is, this is great. But remember, you're going to have to do this all again. Cause we're not rolling and didn't care. Just kept, kept talking so he talked for three hours and then we rolled the camera and then he talked for you know four hours um so yeah he there was a lot of stuff that was uh left on the uh cutting floor but nothing of um uh tremendous significance well i mean and if I may, I, I kind of have a theory because obviously both Roger Sweet is claiming, you know, that he created He-Man. You have Mark Taylor, who's also claiming this. So I, I have a theory and I'm assuming that that you and uh, Roger Lay also in speaking to all these individuals kind of came upon your conclusions. But if it's OK, might I would I be able? Is it OK? Can I give you my theory? Absolutely. I, I would love to hear okay. it. OK, so here's what I think. OK, so Roger Sweet. Um, comes to the executives at Mattel with the three prototype figures, the one for the barbarian named He-Man and then mm-hmm. Bullethead and then Tankhead. So he mm-hmm. brings these to, um, to the executives. They look at them and they say, wait a minute, we think there's something here with the barbarian character. Now this is coming in the wake of Conan the Barbarian. And, you know, the, the movie, the, the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie came out in 1982. So if you want to go down, if you want to go through the timeline here of things. So Conan the Barbarian was a, a huge character. He had his own comic book series in Marvel Comics. So the sword and sorcery genre, I think, was, you know, prevalent and was inspiring quite a few artists at the time. Yeah, yeah. And Frazetta was uh, all over at that time as well. There you go. Yeah. And so, okay. So you have Roger Sweet. He poses this, uh, he presents this, this prototype action figure, if you will. And then suddenly I feel like what happened is suddenly Mark Taylor, this kind of unlocks a, uh, a, a drawing that Mark Taylor had done so many years prior, I think that was inspired by, uh, by Conan. And that, that drawing was, was Torak. And so mm-hmm. what then you have is you have these two entities who are, you know, fighting for credit when I think in the end, both these guys were inspired by Conan. You had Mark mm-hmm. Taylor who created this drawing that was inspired by Conan. You had Roger Sweet who obviously created this figure with a likeness to Conan. And so I feel like what these two individuals did is they just, you know, it, it drew from an inspiration from Conan the Barbarian. And so that's the thing that I was watching this entire time. I was thinking, why is it that these two guys cannot share the credit? Because I honestly think from watching it, from watching the documentary and from listening to the uh, podcast episodes, I think it was a joint venture. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something there. Uh, I mean, it's I mean, who knows? Ultimately, um, the the question then uh, that I would have on your theory is where did if Roger Sweet came into that design meeting with those three characters um, and those molds that he made, where did the idea for the specific look of the He-Man slash Barbarian character come from? That's sort of the that's the big question. Did he right. just come up with that himself, just sitting there and like, I'm going to put this chess halter on him. I'm going to have this little, you know, he's going to have these furry pants and, and boots and he's, he's, uh, you know, going to have a face like this and hair like this, etc. cetera. Uh, did he just come up with that by sitting there going like, all right, well, we're going to have tank head and we're going to have bullet head and this is going to be this guy. Or did he get that, complete specific design idea from a previously existing drawing that he had seen. That's sort of the, that's sort of the question, you know, I mean, I think they were both that stuff, as you were saying, which is very, very true is like, it, it was, it was in the air at the time and, and ripe for the picking, uh, but did Roger Sweet sit down and, and, and craft this thing or, uh, did uh, he happen to see something that Mark Taylor was doing and and use it? And that's the that's that's the big question. Um, yeah. And because uh, it's really down to the 
the specific origin of that specific character because that started everything. And, you know, Mark Taylor says Roger Sweet would not have been able to come up with that character if he had not seen the drawing that, that Mark Taylor did. And Roger Sweet claims up and down that he had no idea, never seen a drawing. He did that completely on his own. So it's... um that's that's the tough one and we'll never know you know yeah. we'll never know uh i i have uh i have theories and thoughts uh, uh i don't <laughs> want to get too too into it but i um for a variety of reasons but uh i think there's you know it's there's this expression that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and I don't think at all that one person is completely telling the truth and one person is completely lying. I don't think that at all. I think that there is uh, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and there is a there's a combination of truths and maybe misremembered facts between the two of them that uh, that went into that. Um, and uh, you know, it's just. It's just unfortunate that they can't sort of, um, you know, get a divorce lawyer and say, like, <laughs> you get the kids, I get the house. Uh, and especially with time having gone by, I mean, look, memory is is a tricky thing to begin with, period. I mean, even if something happened a week ago or a month ago or a year ago, I mean, it's just, uh, it's been proven over, over and over again, you know, in court cases and, and, and things that eyewitness uh, testimony is uh, extremely unreliable, but then you add forty years onto it, and it's just like I, there's no way, there's no way that anybody involved in this is going to remember things one hundred percent accurately, especially with age. And uh, and what happens is that the 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 story that one tells themselves at a certain point becomes that story, and it doesn't matter whether it's the truth or not. It's like in these studies that have been done about um, memory and, and, and telling people, uh, uh, you know, recounting sort of um, uh, anecdotes from, from the past, it's just it, 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 what they're remembering is the telling of the previous story and not the actual event. And so when you, that just snowballs. And, and so when it gets to where it is now, it's, it's, it's completely impossible to, uh, to determine you know what 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 the truth is you can only sort of study human behavior and uh and take a look at what they're saying and how they're saying it and draw your own conclusions as to what of what they're telling is the truth and what may be misremembered yeah well i mean i will say i mean you i think you said it best actually when you and i were were talking a couple days ago i think roger is his own worst enemy as are we all roger sweet I mean, I think he's his, his own worst enemy. And I, I will say, I mean, I, I did almost feel, actually, I, not even almost, I did. I felt sorry for the guy. I mean, Absolutely. It, it feels like he was blacklisted by all toy companies. And then you say it in the uh, documentary and podcast, he, was, uh, he ended up working at Home Depot. Not saying there's anything wrong with working at Home Depot by any means. No, but it is, but a, uh, it is uh, a, uh, not a lateral move. It's, a, it's no, absolutely nothing wrong with working at Home Depot. But when you're a, a well-paid uh, and talented uh, designer of, of of toys and uh, you know airplane interiors and uh, and home products. It is um, it's a place that I'm sure he didn't uh, want to or think that he would wind up. Yeah, and he did. And, and you you can only I can only draw the conclusion that he did that to himself uh, uh, because. You look at everybody else that was involved in this, and for the most part, they had um, successes after uh, after uh, Masters. Um, whether they left Masters and uh, you know started stuff for themselves, or whether they continued on and the Masters went away, and then they went on to do something else. Most of the people involved had um, great careers after that. There's one. Uh, noticeable person who who didn't and that's roger sweet and you you have to uh think i would imagine that he had a a large part to do with that and i i i mean i i see it in um acquaintances and friends all the time uh where 
people are extremely talented and but somehow even if they get a little bit of success they're not able to capitalize on it or um uh, create some momentum or, or further it and you see these traits in these people that uh that I think Roger Sweet has which is this this almost compulsion to um, get in your own way by uh, things that you say and do. And so it wasn't for lack of ability. It was just because he wasn't able to sort of uh, tether his uh, idiosyncrasies down enough, you know? Well, and those scenes in the film where you are showing him footage of what other people said about him and his oh, various claims. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was going to ask. I imagine, Corey, that that had to be so awkward and uncomfortable, not only filming those bits, but being in the same room with him as, oh, it, as you're showing it, him that, right? Yeah, it was. It was. It was not, it was not pleasurable at all. Like, oh, I, we did not get any joy out of um, making Roger uncomfortable or feel bad. And, you know, there was a huge amount of angst just leading up to those moments and then experiencing those moments. But it's like... I felt we had a responsibility to um, present him with uh, what was being said about him to let him respond to it. And the only way to do that was how we did it. But it didn't, d- doesn't take away from how, how extremely uncomfortable it was. I mean, yeah, it was, it, was, it was not fun. It was not fun to do. I did have to laugh, though, um, at, at near the end <laughs> when he asked if he could have a hand in editing the final cut with you. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect example of who he is and, and what I was just talking about a moment ago. I mean, for as, um, you know, as, as sharp as he is in, uh, in certain aspects, like I said, like just sending us... Uh, manifestos with all of these details and, you know, the, the, the type of mind that uh, goes into, you know, designing these things, uh, for all of that, just completely out to lunch when it comes with, when it comes to, to certain things, just like, what are, what are you, what are you thinking? How, I mean, the fact that he would even bring that up just kind of shows his state of mind. It's just, it's like, it's a slightly off. It's just slightly off of, um, reality a little bit well and the last thing that i will say about uh, about mr sweet the 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 other part of the documentary and i'm really glad that you guys included this this in there as well again showing how fair you guys were and how unbiased you guys were is um spoiler i hope i'm not uh spoiling anything but when you show that uh they released a collector's item action figure set called the vicron figures mm-hmm of his initial three prototype molds. So we have the initial uh, He-Man figure from what He-Man really looked like uh, in the early stages, the guy with the tank for the head, and then the guy with the bullet for a head. And I think everyone, everyone involved can agree that those were in fact his creation. And for them, for Mattel or whoever was behind that, uh, that, that limited edition set that was released, for them to release that, and there is not one mention at all of Mr. Sweet in that, to me, that was almost tragic to the point where I had to kind of sit back a bit. I mean, because I remember watching this and I had to hit pause and I had to sit back a bit and I had to kind of wonder, okay, who's the real villain here? Like who's the true Skeletor in this entire ordeal? Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's not even a rhetorical question. The answer is Mattel. I mean, they, they, uh, they, they, (laughs) There's uh, there's a, a, a podcaster that I enjoy listening to, and when things uh, like this come up, and it comes up frequently in, in the news and politics and whatnot, there's the question when stuff happens that he asks, which is stupid or liar, because when you see somebody do something, you're like, is this, is this person just completely incompetent, and that's how all of this shit ended up flowing, or are they... Uh, are they a, a, a liar? Uh, are they? Uh, is there some sort of sinister uh, machination behind it? Either they're doing it on purpose and they're just evil, or they're just incompetent and then shit just ended up happening. With Mattel, it's both, and that's it's rare. They are both stupid and liars. 
um, and I'm not pointing to any one particular person uh, because the people that we talked to, f- for the most part, were, were were lovely, and I wouldn't call them stupid or liars. But just the entity and the um, uh, the machine that was Mattel, they are absolutely the villains in this. And you know, it's it's you know, at that point, it, it seems almost a no-brainer because you're you're already coming up with uh, coming out with these figures that. Nobody really cares about except for the hardcore adult fans. Right. <laughs> and so why not include a little biographical information or background to them for context? It seems like it would be a no-brainer. And it, it, so it was a deliberate decision. It wasn't like, oops, we forgot or no, we don't do this. It was a deliberate decision to exclude any mention of him uh, with those figures. And it's, it's pretty telling. Yeah. Well, and okay, so I do have to bring this back to back to Mr. Mr. Dolph Lundgren. And so I'm curious, okay, so you're a kid, Corey, all right? The movie comes out, the Masters of the Universe live action yeah. movie starring <laughs> starring Dolph Lundgren as He-Man, Franklin where this is going. <laughs> Franklin Jella as Skeletor. A battle fought in the stars. A battle for the power to be masters of the universe. Dolph Lundgren is He-Man. Frank Langella is Skeletor. Let this be our final battle. Masters of the universe, rated PG. So the film comes out. What were your thoughts when you saw it as a kid? Um, I did not see it right away. Um, that was, no, I was, that was, um, uh, I was still interested, but I was getting a little bit older and, uh, my interest was, uh, waning a little bit at that point. I still would have been interested in seeing it. I think what happened was because I grew up in a small town and we had a movie theater that showed two movies. I don't think it played, where I grew up, and so it escaped me, and without social media and, and being aware, I didn't really know that it existed until I saw it hanging on the uh, uh, video shelves for rental. And so it was soon soon after it was released on video, I rented it, and uh, I was um, uh, disappointed would be the word that I would uh, use. I was... Uh, I, I was not uh, blown away by the film, and um, it, it may have even had something to do with the continued uh, 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 lack of interest in my part from uh, that period on. Uh, I just I didn't uh, I didn't I didn't fall in love with it. What did you think of Dolph as He Man though? Because I always looked at I mean, look the Master of the Universe movie. That this was this was the film that made me a uh, a Dolph fan because you mm-hmm. know here here Dolph is playing my uh, my childhood hero that shaped my childhood. So that was kind of my entry point into uh into into Dolph. And I I look upon it then, or excuse me, I look upon it now the same way as I looked upon it uh, as a kid. You know, okay, you're in the mindset of these movie producers. You need a big, larger-than-life blonde figure to play He-Man, and you need a relative name to to, to kind of carry this. And so, yeah, Dolph coming off of Rocky IV, I always felt like he was not not just the best choice, but I always felt he was the only choice. And I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but what did you think of Dolph as He-Man? And we can talk... Look, Franklin Jello's Skeletor, that's on a whole other level. A whole right? other level. A whole course, other level. Yeah. He was and it's not. It's, and it's not even fair to uh, compare them because... No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Absolutely and, not. And that's not being insulting to uh, Mr. Lundgren. It's just like you have a, a trained theatrical actor with tons of experience and a relatively uh, new person on the scene. So, yeah, you can't... Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But um this is Eternia yeah. versus Earth here. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um no, I I I agree with you. I think I think you said it right. I think he was uh the only choice. I thought he was perfectly appropriate for it. I mean, he 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 was it. He looked the part and uh who who else is going to do that? Especially somebody who'd actually done something before. You're going to have to get somebody that has that kind of uh, build uh, that can um, also, you know, be 
uh, you know, carry a film, uh, be charismatic, look good, um, speak, uh, move around. I mean, it's, it's, it's ticking a lot of boxes that's very hard. And it has to be, like you said, somebody that, you know, is, that has a little bit of, um, uh, cachet or somebody that, you know, people, uh, recognize from something. So yeah, I agree. I, I think he was the, really the only choice for the part. Now you have, I'm assuming you've, have you gone back and revisited it through adult eyes? Yeah, I have. I've, um, I've watched it a couple, I think I probably watched it, um, maybe once or twice in my, uh, youth after that. And then I've definitely watched it once or twice in my adulthood. And I've, you know, obviously had to see quite a bit of, uh, stuff um, making, making the documentary. So yeah, I've, I've, I've revisited it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely have more of a, an appreciation for it, especially certain aspects of it. I mean, I, I really appreciated Frank Langella's, uh, performance more as an adult and, uh, and can appreciate, um, especially knowing the backstory of the movie, kind of what they were up against and what they were able to do with it. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of cool stuff in it. Uh, my 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 opinion of it has uh, definitely uh, softened, <laughs> and uh, you know, with with age and perspective, and knowing that you're not sort of like, you know, a loyalist hanging your uh, wishes and dreams on this one thing, so it can't be this disappointing thing. Uh, you know, I can see it for for what it is now, and it's it's. Uh, it's it's an entertaining, uh, uh, fun film with a lot of cool stuff going on, for sure. Well, it gets, I think even by today's standards, it gets a ton of grief, especially by the, um, by the hardcore Masters of the Universe fans. I think for two reasons. However, I will go to bat uh, against these reasons. One of, one of the things that a lot of people, or excuse me, a lot of the fans do not like is how they, they, took, they took the characters and they put them on Earth. Now, yes. To that end, I will say, like, look, this was th- this had this had a budget that they were trying to work with, and so you know, setting the entire film on Eternia, I don't know if would have been the most practical thing to do in terms of uh, the budget. Um, it was impossible. It was, it was impossible. impossible. You know, but I will say, I mean, if you really think about this, and you know, being a filmmaker yourself, I mean, I hope you can you know uh, sympathize with this and see it. But okay, you know. If you think about it, all of these characters are from another planet or from another world. They're very um, larger than life, if you will. And I feel like any story where you have these as your main characters, you almost need that that human component and that human element for the audience to enter this world through. You know what I mean? So they can yeah. go through their eyes and see this world. I mean, this is a lame example, so please bear with me, but um, I took my kids to see the uh, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and if you look at that movie, it's interesting because they did not, they did the same thing with that movie. And they did not set that entire movie on Sonic the Hedgehog's planet. Instead, they brought him to Earth. Now, mm. if they do a sequel to Sonic, then they can more, they could, they, they would have more luck and more, um, I guess, success if they set the entire thing on his planet and his world. But to Mm. me, from a storytelling standpoint, I always felt it made sense for them to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it certainly, I think you're right. It, it, um, uh, it, 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 it's a door that the audience can walk through to sort of uh, appreciate the perspective of who these characters are a little bit better because, because you need, uh, a sort of direct comparison, um, and, and, uh, and, and per- setting it on earth and, and having earthlings, uh, interact with them does that. It, it, uh, cause otherwise it's ca- kind of, you don't know what the, what the rules are when you're just thrust into, uh, another world. You're just, uh, you're just going along for the ride and there is no, there's nothing to check it against to sort of, uh, see how, uh, you know, you actually feel about, what is happening and who these people are. And yeah, uh, putting it on earth definitely provides that. And and if they did do a sequel, like you said, they would, you know, have probably done the same thing. They would have had a bigger budget and they would have, now that we're introduced to these people and we kind of know how we uh, feel, they, you know, they can now set it on Eternia or whatever and 
it uh, you know it can take off from there. But it, it is true. I mean, it's kind of like you know it's uh, it's uh, making lemonade. It's they they literally could not uh, put it on Eternia because of the budget, and so then it becomes all right. Well, let's make this part of. Um, you know, make it look like it's part of a choice because that's what you mm-hmm. have to do, you know? Well, and I'm curious. Okay. So the other, the other thing that I've heard a lot of the fans um, that did, they do that they do not like is how um, in terms of the costumes and the design, the, the design. Yeah. It's yeah. not true to the, it's not true to the source material. Now, yeah. I don't know if when you were interviewing William Stout, but again, when I saw it as a little kid, I justified it. Um, at least in my eyes, because I remember thinking to myself, even as a little kid, I was thinking, okay, this is how He-Man and the Masters of the Universe would look in real life. Like if they were if they were to step through the my TV my my tube TV box as a little kid, and they you know what I mean, and they came yeah. to life, I feel like that is how they would have looked. And so to that end, I think William Stout did an amazing job transferring a toy line and a cartoon series. Um, which, and I probably should back up. It's my understanding. I think the, the movie was based more on the toy line than on the cartoon series, but even still for him to take this and translate it, um, into the cinema, I thought he did a wonderful job. Did, I mean, do you feel that same way or did William Stout, when you spoke to him kind of echo any of those same sentiments? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, 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 he did very much, and uh, it was definitely one of the problems that I had with it initially watching it um, as a kid because I wanted to, you know, I fell in love with these toys and this cartoon, and, and there was this, um, you know, there was a, a synergy between all of these uh, designs, and I was used to them, and I loved them, and so it was a bit jarring and, um, you know, disappointing to see that this this familiarity was not translated onto the screen like I thought and hoped it would be. Now, as an adult looking at it, I feel the same way as you. It's sort of, you can sort of see it as, uh, you know, a little bit of Nolan Batman sort of thing where it's, it really is kind of like you were uh, suggesting grounding it a little bit more in, in reality. And this is what this kind of stuff would actually be like, you know, um, and and also hearing hearing Bill's uh, justifications and um, sort of what his process was like, it definitely uh, when I watched it again after that, I, a lot of my qualms about the uh, the fact that they didn't use the same designs went out the window because it's you know look Bill Bill first of all he's a super super great guy he's amazingly talented and and he worked with mobius uh on on some of the designs so the, i mean these these two guys knew what they were doing and if you're given the opportunity like what are you going to do are you just going to are you going to redesign uh something uh that was drawn up to be practical for a toy that could be you know pumped out by machinery or are you going to use all of the, your your abilities and faculties um, to bear to do something that's what you think is uh, more viable and more interesting, and of course you would do that. Um, so I totally get why he did what he did, and 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 again, if you didn't have anything to compare it to, you wouldn't you I and anybody else wouldn't be thinking, oh well, I don't like the way these things are designed. If you didn't have any, if if He Man, if that was the first time you ever saw He Man, Skeletor, Beast Man, etc., you would not think anything about the designs. You just think they were super cool, right? Well, bringing it back to your to your wonderful documentary. Okay, so I remember seeing the uh, the the seven minute preview that you guys unveiled years ago i mean correct me yeah. if i'm wrong but was it 2012 is that right or 2011 i think it was it? it was like 2011 i think because i yeah. think the date at the end said coming in 2012 <laughs> yeah so yeah and so i mean I, I don't know how much liberty you're um able to to speak about this but yeah so you guys finished the documentary and then i feel like we we kind of quit hearing about it for a period and then two other documentaries came out a uh, power of gray skull and then i think uh toys that made us did a uh an episode um based on the toy line but you guys were the first ones there so 
I mean, I guess on one hand, anyone who um, is dying to see the documentary, you made the uh, the really cool decisions where you said, okay, I'm going to put it in podcast form for for anyone out there who who really wants mm-hmm. to see it. But will we uh, ever be able to to see it in its true intended form? Uh, I mean, I, I I honestly don't know. I I would love uh, the movie to come out, and I would love everybody to see it. Um, there's always uh, possibilities, even if it doesn't have a um, uh, eventual release, that you know we can show it at um, some some fests or uh, private screenings or whatever. So that's always a possibility for people to see it. As far as official release, I I, I have no idea. I really don't. Um, it's it's uh, if I had my way, uh, it would have been out years ago. And if I had my way, I would uh, I would put it out now. Um, it's yeah. It was it was disappointing to see uh, other people um, come in and, and get one out, uh, and and you know and have them be fairly well received and have all these people talking about this and knowing that you know we've had this thing done and in the can and and I wish all of these people who are watching these things oh I wish they could just see ours. Uh, so you know it was it, it was disappointing and. Um, but I, yeah, I just I don't have a good answer to will it ever come out because it, there are just factors involved that are uh, kind of out of my control, and um, and so I, it, it would take uh, it would take uh, somebody kind of um, you know softening and changing their minds about um, uh, things to to be uh, okay with putting it out. Well, I feel extremely honored and blessed that uh, I'm one of the uh, uh, few who is able to see it. So thank you very much. And having seen the the other documentaries that were released subsequently, I will say, uh, and I, I'm saying this honestly, Corey, I feel like yours is the best. I feel like yours really came from a true, um, from a true core heart of fandom, I guess we can say. And uh, yeah, so I I loved yours, and uh, I I hope that we will get to see it because it it truly is. You can tell it was a real labor of love on your behalf. So uh, well done. Well, uh, I thanks. I appreciate you saying that. Um, it, it was it was a labor of love. We uh, it was just me and my friend with uh, mics and cameras um, knocking on doors uh, for you know two years, and then and then uh, eventually putting it together ourselves and 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 uh, kind of looking at it and going like oh i think we do have something here that we could make into something and we 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 just did it all on our own and we did it because we were interested and because we we uh loved the subject matter and uh with with no end goal in mind and um you know i saw the uh i saw the other uh uh, documentaries and it's always it, it was it, you know it was weird going into it because I I didn't know what it was going to be like I mean part of me thought oh I'm going to watch this thing and I'm going to get really pissed because it's going to be um, really good it's going to be better um, or I'm going to watch it and it's going to be terrible and I'm going to be also pissed because oh we could have you know, uh, usurped the same sort of ground as these people and done a better job. And, and, you know, they, they each do, um, uh, certain things very well. Um, I was, I was pleased that, and also it was a bit eerie watching the toys that made us because there were certain cuts in there and, and I'm not saying that there's uh, tomfoolery afoot, but there, there, there were so many direct similarities to some of the uh, things that we did um, in ours that I ended up going like, all right, well, good for us because this independent uh, operation with money behind it um, ended up kind of putting things together um, or certain things together in the same way that we did, who, and we don't know what the hell we're doing. So, uh, I ended up feeling like, oh, good for us that, that these, these professionals, uh, kind of, uh, put these things together in, in, in the same way. And, um, and, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for, uh, the, uh, what, the power of Grayskull. Um, there was some, some good stuff in there as well. I, I didn't walk away from either of those, 
um, thinking, oh man, these are so much better than ours, or oh, we're so much better than theirs. They're, they're, they're definitely told from different points of view, and, and the one thing that I can say about, you know, the power of Grayskull is they don't have Roger Sweet, and, you know, not to, um, dismiss their efforts, but if you, if you don't, if you don't have Roger Sweet in your in your He-Man documentary, then it's uh, incomplete as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and you know, I we just have a different we have a different tone to ours. I I it was much more like the toys that, that made us in that I from the beginning we wanted it to be something for everyone. Good documentaries are uh, things that anyone can watch, even if you're not interested in the subject matter. I've had so many people that I um, uh, strapped down to a chair and uh, clockwork orange their eyes open and said, I know you don't care about this, but please watch this. And they were at the end, they were like, you know, I did not care about this, didn't have any interest, didn't think I was going to like it, and I was hooked um, and interested, and I uh, followed the story throughout, and I found myself being compelled where I didn't think I, I would be. And And that was the point. I wanted to... We wanted to do something for um, not just super fans that delves into all of this minutia and whatnot. We wanted to tell, in essence, a larger story using this particular subject matter because it's not just a story about a toy. It's not just a story about um, two old men who both claim that they came up with something. It's a story about, um, you know, uh, art versus commerce. It's a story about... Um, you know, corporations, and it's uh, it can be applied really to almost any uh, enterprise. Yeah, um, and it's and it's just interesting because the characters involved are so <laughs> compelling. Um, so you know, we we just had a little different spin to ours, and we uh, uh, I I like I like ours the best. Um, and I'm, and I try to be objective about that, although it's very difficult, but I, I like that it, um, it does enough, I think, of, uh, tracing the, the, the nitty gritty and telling the story, but also there's enough sort of entertainment value and enough, um, sort of, uh, more broad speaking themes involved that anybody could sit down and, uh, and watch it, even if you don't know He-Man. Well, and okay, so if we're if obviously we have the podcast that uh, that people can listen to, it's a it's a five episode podcast uh, that we can listen to in the meantime until uh, until if and when this uh, hopefully gets released. But are you at liberty to speak about anything else that you're currently working on or anything that you currently have in the can? Uh, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I haven't done uh, anything um, since then, and don't have any plans. I really fell in love with the the documentary process um, in doing this, and uh, as I uh, always say uh, at uh, Q and As and stuff, um, if if you're sitting around and you're thinking, oh, this would be a good idea for something, just go out and do it. I encourage everybody to go out and do it. Even don't have an end in mind. Don't have, you know, lofty goals of what this thing is going to be. Just go do it because it's tremendous fun and it's it's rewarding in and of itself. Everybody and you can do it. You because you don't need anything other than a camera and a mic. Just go do it and put something together, and you will learn so much and you will enjoy it so much. And um, and I certainly did, and uh, you know I've got ideas uh, of of things that I would would love to do if the opportunity presented itself. But I don't have any um, you know immediate plans for uh, for for anything at the moment. I, I my 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 time is pretty much filled with my um, various day jobs, uh, and uh, but you know um, it, it certainly did. Uh, it certainly did spark that interest, and it's something that, if if it ever came up again, I would definitely enjoy doing again. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for sitting down with a with a fellow uh, with with a fellow big kid at heart, I guess yeah. we'll say, and, uh, and and chatting masters of the universe. And I wish you nothing but the best, and uh, continue staying safe. And uh, I'll, I'll I'll see you around. Thank you again. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, glad you got to see it and you enjoyed it, and I uh, uh, really appreciate the conversation. Most definitely. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. 